0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. Today we speak with James Menzies, the CEO of Coro Energy. They're a London-listed oil and gas explorer with hopes for developing projects in Southeast Asia. They've had a few false dawns, but we talked to James today about his hopes for 2020. On a couple of projects, one in Malaysia and the other in Indonesia. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, James. How are you, sir?
1: Very well. Thank you for uh, having me.
0: Well, no, thanks. Th- thanks for coming on the show. We um, we like an oil and gas story. Been uh, used to be involved in that space, uh, and we're now going to do a few more interviews with oil and gas companies. So you're in Indonesia, Southeast Asia. Why don't you give us a one minute overview of what you're up to and then we'll pick it up from there?
1: Yes, certainly. Yeah. Uh, Coro Energy, we are focused exclusively on Southeast Asia and currently have assets in Indonesia, as you mentioned. And we have a, uh, a, a study going on in Malaysia. We're trying to grow there. Uh, I'm, my background is as a geophysicist and a geologist. I spent most of my career in, in the London, in, um, London and Scottish Marine Oil, LASMO, which was a an independent, um, working internationally. A lot of my time in Vietnam and Indonesia with those guys. Um, and then I went into corporate finance when that got acquired by E&I. And uh, as, as a result of that, I set up a company called Salamander, which, was, uh, which we listed in the UK. We sold it to Off Air Energy in 2014, 2015. And uh, now I'm with Coro since May uh, of 2018. And helping them establish and grow a business in that region. So Coro today has a very small production business in Italy. And but actually the story is all around Southeast Asia, as you say.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thanks for the summary. We'll we'll get into some of the detail now. Um, If you don't mind, I want to start with the business plan, the thought. What was going on up here when you started this? You know, what did you set out to do? As you say, you came um, off the back of success at Salamander, um, but this—that was a big company. This is a hu- smaller, more humble beginning, I'm sure. So, what did you think you were going to do, and um, how did you think you were going to go about delivering it?
1: Yes, great question. Um, I have to remind you, Salamander wasn't a big company when we started it around my kitchen table. In fact, it was a Good. lot smaller than this. So, I, this is very familiar to me, this, this kind of evolution, and uh, I think you, you know, it's something you have to um, accept, you know, if you're going to do this, uh, start small and grow big, you know, you just have to be prepared to live through that. Um, to be honest, when we started Salamander, I'm not going to bang on about Salamander uh, a lot, but um, there was an important learning there. When we started that, it was a different time. It was a time when lots of capital was available, oil and gas was very much in fashion. Investors wanted in, and really our mantra was uh, emerging markets, Southeast Asia, and EMP. And if you like those two things, you'll love Salamander. Uh, today, that that doesn't really wash. And uh, you know what we learned through that whole Salamander exercise was what works well in Southeast Asia and what doesn't. Now, when I arrived in Coro, and the the founders of Coro, the backers of the board at the time, asked me to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are very much more exploration um, led people. And their thinking was all around exploration. Uh, actually my experience in Southeast Asia has told me exploration is a real losing streak. We had uh, not good experience in Salamander and actually not very, very, very few. I can't in fact, I'm struggling to think of any small cap, mid cap companies that were successful explorers in Southeast Asia. It's got a great exploration track record, uh, particularly recently, but that's with big companies who have got big, deep pockets and long time horizons who are drilling deep water looking for big gas. It's not our game. Uh, what I was able to do was convince the board uh, that actually the game that works well in, in Southeast Asia is, is picking up small uh, fields that others haven't bothered with. Because of their size, and and typically, when you look at the companies investing across the, the space, and we, I need to come back to that because there's a big change going on there. Um, they have made, they have developed uh, large fields, and anything that's you know 50 million barrels, 100 million barrels or less, you know, they're just not interested, and particularly small pockets of gas, the same. Mm-hmm. And what we see is a lot of those around. So what I'd call greenfield, fallow discoveries, which small companies can pick up absolutely will work at this this price environment and this cost environment and under the contract terms in the region. And that uh, has been yielding fantastic returns. There numerous successful stories there. And building a portfolio of those and managing that has been a real winning game. Uh, so we're not breaking new ground, but that is a well-trodden path and that's the route I, I want uh, Coro to go.
0: Okay, so in just so I'm clear, so you were talking about you know f- these fallow fields, which are greenfield. They're not producing, but there's enough yeah. data to tell you that you could get into production reasonably quickly and economically, yeah. and then do a step out program from there. That, that's your model.
1: Um, correct. So I think there's a greenfield model which is exactly as you say. So it doesn't. It can be in production. It doesn't. I don't mind if it isn't. It can be. In fact, in some ways, it helps if it is but, uh, but commercialising that resource and step-out exploration, the next fault block or the next bump along, fantastic. Those results work really well, but don't go wildcatting in the middle of a basin, you know, where no one has drilled within 100 kilometres. that's just a disaster. So um, that's the Greenfield model, but actually what we're seeing in Southeast Asia right now is a big change in the ownership structure of assets. And that means a lot of brownfield opportunities are coming And so you have to be open-minded to pick up brownfield uh, projects, which are generally quite mature producing assets. Mm -hmm. What I I see the advantage there is you can take those, of course we can lower costs and extend field life and extend the contract terms, et cetera, et cetera. But actually recycling that free cash flow into these small greenfields is going to be a fantastic model.
0: Okay. So that's the theory of the model. And we'll come on to talk about your assets in a second. Let's—you've mentioned a few times there the board, the team, etc. So let's get into some of the people and names associated with this. Obviously, you've given us a bit of background about yourself. Great. You've also got James Parsons on there. You know, um, Sound Energy and and Echo Energy, big name. Um, You got Fiona and Marco as well. But let's start with James. So is James? Is he just a name on there? Is he active? What's he actually doing on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, he's, he's a non-executive, right? Uh, so uh, to emphasise that, and I think he'd be the first to say that you know this isn't a team that needs a lot of uh, handholding. Uh, I think I'd also point out that um, you know Southeast Asia isn't James's speciality, uh, and he would readily uh, admit that. So I think in terms of knowing the, uh, the companies, the, 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 the national companies, the regulators, how things are done, what they expect. That's not really James's uh, uh, area. Um, that's very much uh, mine and, and the team I use down in Southeast Asia. That's what we know very well.
0: So why is he uh, there? Why is he there? He,
1: uh, he and Marco are instrumental in starting this business. You know, they raised the capital. It was their concept. Same with Echo. You know, I think uh, obviously we've all seen sounds I- issues and and what's happened there. Um, but you know, without people like James in this industry, it, do, it does need entrepreneurs to come out and kickstart things. Um, where this may end up may not be what they thought it would be. But a lot of entrepreneurial work is you don't know where it's going to go. You know, you 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 start things off and let's see where it gets to. And and actually, that is James and Marco's very very strong point: is that they they are willing to take risks and get these things off the ground. What Happens to them
0: thereafter, let's see. Okay, so I noticed one of the other names you got on there, someone I know um, from back around Ophir days in 2013, 14, 15, was Nick Cooper. Um, What's his involvement in this? I know he's an an independent, but what's he actually doing here?
1: Yes, why is he here? (laughs) I think what that speaks to I see Nick someone I've known um a long time he worked with me in Salamander he was the CFO uh, I was the CEO and he was a co-founder of the company with me so he's also lived through this evolution of you know working in relatively modest surroundings and growing a business and 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 you know he's a guy who's prepared to roll his sleeves up again he's a non-exec so he's not in here day to day uh doing things but I think what Nick brings a, it's it's backup for me in, in terms of he understands what I'm doing in Southeast Asia. He's done it himself. He's completely okay with all of that. Um, also I think given that and I was saying earlier that that um, the transformation for Coro, we come back to this, but is is all about this change of ownership of assets in Southeast Asia. You know, Nick is a guy who's also built with me in Salamander a company with these assets, and he's and he's ran a company in Offir. That has had big asset positions, big portfolios, dealt with, um, you know, big institutions, national companies, regulators, and, you know, I think he speaks to that element of our strategy. I think James and Marco very much the, the the start of this, the the, you know, the incipient piece that that gets the, you know, the the seed going and starts it growing. But you need people like Nick who who understand where this needs to go and how it needs to act.
0: Okay, i okay. Um. And so, how does this work with have got your 10 million market, 9 million, 10 million market cap, pounds, um, small company, and you've got to, you kind of, the sum of parts needs to make you look bigger than you are to be able to have conversations out there, despite whatever your track record is, okay? So, are these people paid consultants? How do, how do, how do you remunerate everyone? How does that work? Or are they just advisory for now? And we'll see how it goes. how does it work?
1: Um, so I don't know. There might be two things you're asking me. There, I'm being a bit confused. Let's deal with the. You're only a micro cap. How do you have conversations? Question. Okay. Um, actually, uh, it, it doesn't really matter what the size of your your, your uh, market cap is. If I mean, we know, um, particularly the the people in Malaysia and in Indonesia. We know everyone in the industry, all the service providers. Um, it is a relatively small world out there. And once you're, you know, as you're part of that club, you you know everything that's going on. So it doesn't matter if if I had a, if I had no cap behind me, I could still have those conversations. Um, moving on to the people, um, we have a very small team here in London. There's only four people in this office, and um, one of them's a PA. Um, so we're running very lean. We have a team um, on the ground uh, in Southeast Asia that we pull in for evaluation work principally. Um, and so they're not employees. We do bring them, but the same people. It's a constant, you know, that technical um, resource is the same people that we use time and time again. So we're, we're not chopping and changing you know, that element. I think, you know, in growing a company, there are three things you're always worried about. It's, it's the deal, uh, the capital and the people. And you, you spin these plates and you have to get them landed in the right order. There's no point in hiring a big team if you haven't got the capital or the deal. Um, so there is a little bit of a, a circle there. You've got to break into and get it right. At the moment, we can chase deals. We don't. That doesn't cost anything really, and it's a bit of G&A. That's it. Um, when you land a deal, and you have to have the people who are prepared to come with you to uh, to evaluate these things and who you are going to hire should you be successful. Okay. Um, but when you're looking at a deal, of course. Getting on the right side of it and getting uh, negotiating with the counterparty and then being prepared to deal with you is a challenge, but the biggest challenge, and that is, that's that's the n- number one challenge right now. The, the next challenge is going to be how do we finance it sensibly and creatively? Because what we see is our share register isn't necessarily one. We're not going to turn around to people and expect them to stump up, you know, tens of millions of dollars for for something. Clearly, that isn't going to be possible. So we have to be Creative in a corporate
0: financing. Well, I think that was my point, is like when you're a 10 million market cat with no cash behind you, or very little cash behind you, certainly not enough to make acquisitions, the seller will rank you by his thoughts on whether you're likely to be able to raise capital or not. So you may be able to have conversations, but how seriously people take it. And I've been there myself, I've been in the rooms, you know. If you're if you're sitting there with access to hundreds of millions of bucks, they're all ears, right? Right now I'm set. And what I was getting to was, you know, you've got some big names on there who aren't necessarily day to day. You're running the company, but did they allow you to have conversations a ten pounds company wouldn't be able to have?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, the target assets we are looking at, first of all, they are universally debt financeable number 1 number uh, because of the nature of them so we're looking at production assets that have generating free cash flow by and large and they've been in existence for many many years there's a there's a, a cadre of banks in south in southeast asia that are very happy to lend to oil and gas companies and you know have lent to these these either these particular assets or these solid assets are known to them so the vast majority of any financing can be taken care of that way there is always going to be an equity component now, our challenge is going to be, how do we manage that? Because, you know, we don't want to turn around to and say, just give me the money, because chances are most of our, our shelves don't have it. So, we have to find a way of dealing with that equity component in a creative way. Um, maybe I can just mention something which is in the public domain that we have looked at by way of example, which was Offair itself. This is pre Nick's involvement with Coro mm. uh, last year, you know, when it was being sold to Medco for cash. And actually there's a high quality asset base that I knew very well. A lot of my old Salamander assets were there. Um, and we felt actually Medco were getting a steal here. They're walking away with it. And we were approached by a number of Ofia shareholders to see, could you offer us an alternative? Now Ofia had so much cash on the balance sheet. We, we also had a line of credit from um, a large um, financial institution. I probably shouldn't name, but it, anyway, a bank everyone would recognise. Um, and we offered them stock and we put a, a, a credible stock and cash uh, offer to the board of with and we were down to the last two. It was us or just an all-out cash bid from Medco. Now, ultimately they had to raise their offer and we lost it. But that sort of deal would have seen Coro catapulted into a 20,000-barrel-a-day producer generating free cash flow, paying dividends, big capital return to shareholders straight off the bat. It puts our equity owners in a very, very different place. You suddenly go from nothing into into the major
0: league. but But again, it comes to my point here, which is I want you to help people, retail audience, investors understand the difficulty of doing business because an all cash offer is always going to sit ahead of a cash and shares offer. In, in in my humble experience in, in in the in the past, okay, and any producing assets or also which can be mostly financed by debt are going to it's going to be in a highly competitive environment. So, again, what are the things that you have in place? Your contacts, your experience, you know, your your know-how, which is going to allow you to genuinely compete going forward. Because we're going to talk eventually here about an M and A component to you know what you're doing. You've mentioned it at the beginning, and I do want to get into it. So, what are the things that you've got that allows you to genuinely compete? Not talk about it or nearly do it, but actually get it over the line.
1: I think uh, maybe I could challenge that. And I think part of the changing dynamic in, in Southeast Asia is that yes, it has been competitive historically, mm-hmm. but actually the dynamic at the moment is that there is a wall of selling going on. Okay. So now there is a limited number of buyers. Why like is the
0: selling happening, first of all? I'm still with that.
1: Um, Well, first of all, let's just establish what is going on. So if you look at the the, the players in Malaysia, now I'll I'll talk about Malaysia because that's somewhere I'm particularly interested in and it's quite a good laboratory to look at because actually the the Malaysians have been, uh, the barriers to entry have been quite high in the country. So you don't have a long tail of small independents running around. In fact, you've you've got almost zero. Um, The players that are there are big IOCs, big international companies and majors and national companies. And of those right now on the market, Hess is selling out, Exxon is selling out, Repsol is about to come to the market, Petrofac are selling out. Um, who's going to buy all those assets? Uh, now, the reason, actually, well, the reason they're selling is, is twofold. One is, Southeast Asia is predominantly viewed as non-core to a large North American or a major. They, they, to some it is core, I'd say to Shell, it's, it's part of their DNA, South, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, definitely. So, I, d- I wouldn't expect them to be a big seller. I think they'll trim their portfolio, but not you know, withdraw wholesale. Um, so, not being viewed as non-core, number one. And number two, um, you know, th- this whole green- greenhouse gas emissions uh, saga. And now, Asia is a gassy province. Most, a lot of these assets are big gas producers and some of it has some CO2 associated with it. And for these larger companies, it's very, they can make an, uh, an impact on their corporate numbers by withdrawing from some of these countries, straight off the bat. And then all of them, you will have seen and you know, your, your, your viewers, listeners, uh, followers will have seen very large statements being made by a lot of the majors about cutting uh, these numbers for tw- the years 2030, 2050, even for the next year. They, they're, they're, they're all of them behaving in the same way. Actually, I think you know that could end in tears because when you see the whole of the industry going down a certain path, you know, you've got to wonder, it never normally ends well. That's not my problem. Um, actually, I think that is a source of opportunity for the independent sector because we don't have the same scrutiny. Um, and we can take some of these assets and improve those CO2 emissions standards, for example. In fact, you can get financing, which uh, where you get better terms by reducing things like CO2 emissions. So, we can take it clean it up, make it better. And but these are high quality assets, make no mistake, this isn't a ragtag, you know, tail of the portfolio stuff. These are meaty, core assets. For <laughs> us, they'll be very, very core. Now, there are very few buyers right now, mainly because there's no capital around. But when you look at the people who have been buying, they're gonna get full pretty damn soon. And with the with the number of, every week right now I'm hearing about another portfolio coming to the market. Now in the North Sea, let's draw a parallel with that, where people might have a lot more familiarity, we have seen a very active liquid m M&A and asset market. So there's lots and lots of deals going on in the North Sea constantly. And the people who have benefited from that have been the independents themselves, backed by private equity in some cases, um, some cases not, but we've seen some imaginative creative deals being done. For example, Serica, uh, you know, you see Rockrose, um, Diversified in the States, uh, Jadestone in Southeast Asia. These have been some of the best performing EMP stocks in the market and they're acquirers of assets.
0: Well, tell, tell, yeah. us, tell us something about this, the these types of deals that you would consider. Again, we're going to keep it fairly generic here, because unless you want to tell us about specifics. Um, you know, again, going, going back to my experience, when people are offloading portfolios, you're going to get some good stuff and you're going to get some not so good stuff. Because that's the way they bundle these things up. I've been involved in deals like that myself, where you don't necessarily want some of the assets, but you've got to have to take them and the liabilities that are associated with it. So, are you looking at large portfolio type structures, or are you talking about you looking more specific at individual fallow fields as you described them earlier? I mean, what, what's your go-to uh, or preferred uh, yeah. option? Uh,
1: to be honest with you, I, we're, we're looking at all of that, all of the above. I'd say the fallow fields are really sitting in the um, regulator's hand. So they are we deal we deal direct on license rounds or just to get those awarded from the government effectively. So we're not out looking to write checks and bid for them, you know, with counterparties. That that isn't that game. Um, in terms of assets and MA, we would we, we look at portfolios and we look at individual assets. To be honest, <clears throat> it would be much easier to start with a one off transaction, just you know a single asset to get you a a major step, but that positions you then really to go and get the big the big portfolio. So, we have quite big ambitions in that regard um yes, it's a challenge to go from nothing to very large. It can be done um i'm not you know i'm not saying we can't do it. I think we can, but there are easier steps you can take um so we yes we look at we look at all of above okay the okay
0: so and again, I just want just finishing off the macro component southeast asia you've got you know lots of jurisdictions and you know um of the regulation there I mean what would you say the big red flags are which you know can work for and against you in the sense that if you know you how to way, way around the system how to navigate the, the system, it can work in your favor. It can it can be a barrier to entry for others coming in, which works to your favor, right? But what are the big things that you know investors should be listening out for when you know companies like yourself are talking about investing in Southeast Asia, or in, the, in yep. the oil and gas uh, area, of course?
1: Um, I think there there are a number of things that that are vitally important. I mean, clearly, number one, I always look at it as the rocks. Uh, if the rocks aren't working for you, you're going to lose this game. Um, so, you know, we need something that, where we can believe. And in fact, a lot of what we talk about when we look at our current asset base is around things where we see, you know, gas lighting up the seismic, for example, uh, where, we, where we see things that have already been drilled and appraised that, you know, reduces your risk enormously. So, uh, and once you've worked out for a while, you kind of know the basins that have the style of asset that's going to suit you. So we're not coming. I mean, there's so many basins in Southeast Asia. Um, there are certain basins I just rule out straight away. I just don't want to go there. Um, and part of that is because the second big thing that you need to look out for your partners. And this is yeah. something that if you're new to the region, it takes you a long time to work it out. Um, but uh, we already know who we'd like to partner and who we importantly, who we don't want to partner with. It sounds awful to say it, but um, there's a lot of names where we just go, stop, don't, don't. It doesn't matter how attractive the thing looks, we're just not doing it because we know there's a strong chance that's going to lead you down a path which isn't about making money from oil and gas.
0: And and these partners, these are strategic partners with money or these are strategic partners who are on the ground helping you around the regulatory, licensing, permitting issues?
1: Um, when I say partners, I mean people who might own an asset today who would like you to come and help work with them, um, and that's really not going to work. Um, if you if you if you see something that's very attractive in that regard, the best thing to do is to get the partner out, uh, so you st- construct a deal whereby they're gone, and, and yes, you you can control the asset. But um, yeah, I think partners can bring everyone. I mean, they can bring a partner, they can bring a project to grind it to a halt. Um, I think in terms of the regulatory issue, I mean, again, I think knowing, you know, we know very well what the Indonesians expect. We know what the Malaysians expect. We know what the Vietnamese expect. We know what they expect from us and we know what to expect from them. I know, you know, the timeframes they're going to react to, I know which sort of approvals they're going to need. And so we're not surprised by things, but I think whole, trying to learn all that is, you know, it takes time and things go out. Um,
0: okay. What, what happened at um, Bulu?
1: Yeah. Um, well, two, two things happened. One is the, the time to get the regulatory approval is taking a long time. Um, not a surprise. I will tell you why. On that deal, we were stepping into a, a, a transaction which someone else had been trying to do for a couple of years. They couldn't complete it because they couldn't raise the money. We had the money. So we went to the Indonesians and the counterpart and said, look, you know, why don't we and and the party that was trying to do the deal, and got the three of them in the room and said, look, why don't we do this? We will step in and do that deal. We'll deal with the party who can't complete it, and you, seller, uh, will be able to complete the deal with us. So we had to unwind something that was already in place. Number one, so we had to undo all that. Then we had to bring Coro in as a as an investor in Indonesia, and then we had to put Coro on the license. So we knew it was going to take a long time, um, and I think that, although it's going to take a long time, that was on its way to happening. And so I don't think that would have been a, a problem, to be honest. It, would just, it just takes time.
0: And, um, and does, it, does it retain any value for you today? In, in terms of, do you think you're getting value for that on the books?
1: No, no. We've we've gone past the long stop date twice now, and we said, okay, well, the long stop date, you can walk away. So this is just, you know, we're no longer obliged to complete this transaction. What actually changed for us was um, not, uh, not that. It was not to do the regulatory issue. That was fine. It was not to do the rocks. They were fine. We we're very happy with the field, very happy with the gas market in, in Eastern Indonesia. But we were getting into another development, appraisal development project. And we have one in the West of Tuna, which to be honest, we prefer. I think it's going to move quicker. Um, but really the big thing was the partner, coming back to that again. Chris Energy is the operator of Vulu and it's no secret, if you go to Chris Energy's website, you'll see that they are, you know, effectively in Chapter 11, they're fending off, fending off um, creditors. They're looking to restructure their portfolio. Everything's up for sale. Um, I think their ability to move the project forward as Chris Energy is zero right now. And if they sell Vulu to someone else, we don't know where that's going to go. And I've just made the comment that, you know, partners is the number two risk. Yeah. Um, but it's up there, and if it ends up in the hands of someone we don't really want to be with, what are we going to do? Okay, so, so very,
0: very frustrating process for you, I'm, I'm sure, to have gone that far down the line, and then
1: I think we could have continued with it. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we chose to walk, and um, I think it's the best thing for shareholders because we announced that deal. We then got into the Western tuna deal, which we infinitely prefer. Yeah. I'd rather put dollars into that. Than in Tabulu,
0: To be honest with you. Okay. And just so why don't, why, while we're on the subject of just, trying, I want to park some stuff so I can actually focus on the assets that you've got. So, so Italy, you've again consciously decided to walk away from Italy. You've got this Po, po Valley assets. The Italians not loving oil and gas as much as they used to. Um, you've you walked away, and I guess that's got no value on the. On, well, you know, you see, you said you're selling it, but is that is there real value in that? Are you going to get it, make any money?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it can make money. You have to invest into it, though. And uh, are you going to? Well, we aren't. No, but I think someone who wanted to grow business in Europe could do. Yes. Oh no, I'm talking about and you.
0: So, so there's no value for you. No.
1: Um, like if you discovered a, a big oil field in your back garden, has it got value for you? Yes, but are you going to know it? No. Um, so you would say I've got an asset. It's an oil field in my backyard. But it's the same for us in Italy. There isn't. There is.
0: Let me put. Okay. Let me ask another way. Are you going to sell it? Are you going to make any money when you sell it? And are you walking away or are you going to retain some kind of interest?
1: I think yes to all of those apart from the retained interest. No. I mean, we are going to retain an interest in the company that's buying it because I think there's some kickers coming down the road. But What's, um, what's that worth to you then? Oh, very little. I mean, we're, in our mind, mentally, we don't assign any great value to it. I mean, I, think, I don't think it's going to change Coro's fortunes, put it that way. Right. And you're, and
0: you're also equally not going to be distracted, by, distracted no. by it. So it may or may not generate some cash for shareholders, but with the company and then value for shareholders, but unlikely.
1: I don't think it's going to change shareholders' lives. Okay. Got I it. think it's going to our other activities.
0: Good. Okay. Well, like, yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to clarify that and also park that. So Bulu, how much money did he spend, you know, getting Bulu through to the stage where he decided to walk away?
1: Um, about okay. 200k. So I mean, it was actually we looked at it as an option. We had an option for one and a half years, um, something like that. Um,
0: so 200,000 in total. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah no, it's, it's it's some lawyers' fees. That's that's all we spent. We haven't actually spent any money, money. Um, well,
0: G and A presumably, and time and salaries and all of that kind of good stuff, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I think the total quantum we can is about 250,000. I mean, it's really lawyers' fees. Um, in terms of GNA, you know, we have a very small team here, as I say, which you know we pay for regardless. But really, we—it uh, was—it was going through a paper trail with the regulators, so we weren't actually uh, ascribing time to it particularly.
0: It okay. Okay, so let, let, let's talk about what you do have today, w- where you are being assigned value. You've got Mako. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I would love to tell you about Mako. Um, this is a project when I, to be honest, coming back to when I first arrived in Coro, and I was talking to the Board about strategy, this was my number one target. I, I like this area. I think the Western area is a great basin for independents like Coro. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very prolific um, basin for oil and gas. It supplies Indonesia, it supplies Singapore. Um, there's, there's changeover in asset ownership going on. And what I like about this um, project is it's a it's an unusual um, asset. It's biogenic gas. It's shallow, um, so it's it's only 500 meters below the mud you know below uh, the mudline. But it's uh, aerially huge, it's about square kilometers or It's just an enormous area. And I felt here where uh, there's an area where an independent can come in, take a slightly different view, conventional. Uh, oil and gas company, and end up with a substantial gas resource very close to the Singapore market. And the Conrad, who is the operator of that uh, block, um, had done a great job in drilling the Mako spot. And this demonstrated high quality gas, uh, deliverable reservoir, they poured it, they flow tested it. Uh, it all was starting to look like this could be what I thought it could be. And so we came in and partially um, funded the, the, the well program. We put 10, 10.5 million dollars to work there, and used a bit of our equity to uh, as, as part of consideration, uh, which valued the whole project on a gross basis at about ninety one million dollars. So that's the value we ascribe to it. And in paying for it, we're actually going to do some drilling. So we're not writing a check and you know letting them wander off. We're we're going to fund work. And we drilled two wells, and uh, if I can call the Mako South the Discovery Well, which is the one Conrad drilled, uh, they had about seven and a half meters of reservoir sand. They flowed gas well. The first well we drilled uh, found ten meters of the same sand, same gas water contact, same pressure cell, in communication as far as we can see. It's all one contained unit, and it was something like a, I think I want to say thirteen kilometer step out, but it's a long step out, it's huge. We then drilled um, the Tambac 1 well to the third well if, after Mako South, Tambac 2, then Tambac 1, and that one um, I think found about 25 meters of sand. It also found the gas water contact in that sand, which is good because at the moment, otherwise we were looking at inferring a gas down to, water up to and telling you where the gas water contact was. But we actually have it. We have it in the reservoir. And that we'd flow tested it, flowed 11.4 million a day on test. Um, lovely clean reservoir sands, you know, excellent per, uh, permeabilities and porosities. Um, so, really pleased with the results of the drilling. Um, we felt at the time that the pre drill 2C resource number um, by Gaffney Kleins on an independent basis is about 276 BCF and about 395, I want to say in the 3C, the upside case. We felt that the drilling was highlighting the upside case here, that that was going to be more likely a resource number. So we see um, approximately 100 BCF of resource ads as a result of this. What we've been doing since those wells were drilled is reworking the data to integrate the new well, well data. Uh, operators have been doing that. Um, when they've completed their work, which they're about doing now, Gaffney clients are going to revisit their CPR, and we're going to get a new certified uh, um, resource figures out of them.
0: okay, so you're, you're excited, you're excited technically about it. Can I just come back to how you're intending or how you have structured or agree, how have you agreed to structure this deal? Are you buying into asset level? Are you buying into the uh, operator company? Are there shares Is it cash? Because as we've talked about, you know, the ca- cash is a, a premium at the moment.
1: Yes, cash is um Well, we, as I say, we structured the deal as, a, as effectively a farm into it, and we were preferentially paying. So we paid ten point five million dollars towards the drilling of those two wells, and then we're, we're only getting fifty percent of the project, by the way, or the block. And of course, then we're paying our, our way fifty beyond above and beyond that ten and a half, we're paying fifty percent of everything. So sort of on a heads up basis. Um, the, the deal was, was structured such that we would like to have Coro own equity directly in the production sharing contract in the block. So we, we, we would see Conrad, uh, Empyrean as the other partner, and, and Coro all directly owning interest. That's where we're going with it.
0: Okay, fantastic. And sorry, can I just say just, you, you paid $10.5 million cash. How much cash have you raised to date?
1: Um, we we raised a Euro bond for about 22.5 million euros. Um, that was that was funding, um, and then we had about sorry to mix up the currencies about 14 million quid on admission, um, uh, uh, with a, at 4.58p a share. Okay, how, um, how much have you got left? Well, the last reported numbers were about 11.5 um, million dollars uh, as at uh, mid-year 2019. How much have we um, got left, though? We're down to well, we're down to about six, six to seven, I would say, by the year end. We haven't. We're going to come out with either year end numbers quite soon. But we we're funded for the foreseeable future. I think um, is the important point. That. And we've been through the drilling program. Um, just to come back to uh, how this deal will end up, because I think you were asking about the company. Are we buying to the company the license? Da 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 da. And there is a related point to the approvals that. On Bulu, I was telling you that we it, it took a long, long time with the regulator. We went through two long stop dates. Um, we know it can take a long time with the regulator. We don't think um, that that Doyang or, or this this deal uh, is going to take as long as Bulu did. But you know, there's a certain amount that's outside our control. So if for some reason that doesn't happen, we've spent. So you're going to say you just give them ten and a half dollars. You have not You you haven't been approved. You know, my God, you've lost everything. No. So if that is the case, then your safety net is that you end up with 15% of the operating company. So we will still have a, uh, our 15% interest. It will just be held through something that's jointly owned by all the, all the partners, rather than direct. But what we would prefer is to go direct. Okay.
0: Great. Okay. So t- two questions there. I mean, if you end up with 15% of the operating company, given the perilous state of the the market, you're telling me, how do you know that's going to be worth anything, you know, in the near future? I mean, what, what, what security are they able to give you?
1: Uh, well, it loans it loans 100 percent of the asset. So, but, but if know, the asset's
0: not producing anything, then that doesn't count for anything. So, in that scenario, uh,
1: I think um, I think it's quite a valuable asset. I mean, we get it independently valued as well. The gas clients, for example, value it too, and we value it publicly. Um, and uh, once we have the new CPR, of course, the next thing we will be doing is going to get the gas sales agreement. Um, sorted out. So at the moment, there's a heads of agreement with a gas buyer in Singapore. Um, to get the, guest, the best gas price, you want to market the biggest volume. So by upscaling the volumes that are available to market, you're going to improve your gas price. Now, Singapore mm-hmm. is the best gas market in Southeast Asia. Okay.
0: Now, yeah. I, was, I, I was just talking about the, the what if scenario. You said what if it didn't get in production. Uh, we don't with 15% of the operating business. And in that context, you know, what security is there for you if this field isn't producing? It may be on paper worth something, but if no one's going to buy it.
1: Can I just say that doesn't, that's a, doesn't matter how we hold it. If, it's, if you think it's going to be worth nothing, it doesn't matter if we direct or hold it through the operating company, it's worth nothing. So how we hold it doesn't change that risk. Um, we don't believe that. And in fact, we walked away from Bulu because we think this one will go quicker. And the reason we believe it'll go quicker is because it's a Singaporean gas market, which is high value, mm-hmm. high demand. Okay. Uh, you have a gas sales in with Singaporeans, the banks will be falling over themselves to help to, to fund you. Uh, it's a cheap development, it's a simple tie in, um, it's a good quality gas. Uh, I think, and I know actually from the, the small uh, Southeast Asian oil patch that I am. Um, um, Part of, uh, for good or, or bad, um, this is an asset that everyone in that region picking up and taking notice of. Right, um, okay. we know it has value.
0: Okay, well that, that's that's great. But I'm just I'm just trying to get into the heart of it to help the viewers of this program, subscribers to this channel, to understand the, the numbers and what, where the confidence that you have comes from. Okay, so you've raised 22 and a half, uh, million bucks. You got fourteen and a half. Million when you um, originally came to market, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of money. You've got six million today. You've had a f- couple of projects which you know you've, you've worked on, but have no value, as per, as uh, according to you. Well, it, 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 Italy and, and Bulu. You're saying have no value. You, you said that
1: Bulu hasn't because we walked away from it. Italy has value, but I, I don't think it's going to, you know, uh, turn into something that's. You know, are going to be a ten bagger It won't. It has value. It's been generating cash flow for us. And well, um, g- g- know, g- give, me
0: a, give me a number. G- give me a number. What do you think it's worth?
1: At the moment, it's doing about one and a half million scuffs a day of, of quite, you know, of high priced gas. So uh, as we speak, it's it's doing a um, it's doing reasonably well. But our future isn't about that. That if you know, we're not going to be investing into Italy. So it's no, I, I know that.
0: I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to. That's where I'm. That's where I'm heading. Is to say, you know, you you you've got ten and a half million bucks, which you're going to commit to make out because you, you believe in yeah. it. It could get to market quicker, which is which is great. Today, you're at ten million pounds, nine and a half, ten million pounds market cap. Um, obviously, that's significantly less than the cash that's gone into the business, but there is the neat That therein lies the nature of the business you're you're in. So. And 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 at the same time, you know, the share price over the last three years is is you know down, you know, seventy odd percent. It's you know you presided over a period of a tough market, but also a dropping share price. So, I want you to help me and you know anyone listening to this. Where's the confidence come from that you think Mako is going to be the making of the business?
1: Well, I, th- I think Mako could be a, a company maker. We you know, in terms of value, it's roughly speaking, these things are just shy of a of a million dollars per BCF when it comes to resources. That's you know, if you if you do MP and I'm I'm sure our broker will have something that, you know, will be in that line. That's sort of how we see it. So, you know, if you have a four hundred BCF field, gross terms, that an MPV ten, you know, which no one's gonna be buying, but that's gonna be a four hundred million dollar asset. Um, Let's say it's, Let's say you you sell it in the market tomorrow, and you get half of that would be reasonable. That's double what we paid. So you know this 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 is a hard asset. It's got hard value. Uh, we've just made it look more attractive from a commercial point of view, and we're beginning the gas sales agreement. So we're de-risking the thing as we go. We're going to go for FID on it. However, we only have fifteen percent. Now, my my great my great. Regret over over Mako is I could not get more
0: of it. I okay. wanted at least five forty. Okay, so you so you like it. You you like the asset, which is fantastic. Um, help again your shareholders who are you know much underwater understand the timing of when you think this thing starts looking like it's going to get into production because that you know that helps sentiment and when you think it's going to start actually generating cash, which will definitely help sentiment.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is a this is something that we've just drilled the appraisal world on. Frankly, I mean, we have a POD. So the next, the milestones to look out for: independent CPR from Gaffney Client. That should be coming probably the end of this quarter. Um, the gas sales agreement, which they'll be at, once they have that CPR in their hands, they'll be able to go out marketing that and get that finalised with buyer. This year? Uh, yeah, definitely this year. Um, probably in this, in the third quarter, I'd say, maybe mid-year third quarter. And then you're gonna go for FID. You're gonna to have to have your plan of development revised with Indonesians, but I think that's a, a relatively, you know, I wouldn't say trivial matter, but it's a sort of routine matter. Uh, and then you're going for FID. And I think you'll find that the, the banks will be chasing us for to help us out on this one. So I, I you know, I would go PA on on asset absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, it's the sort of asset that is gonna fly in Southeast Asia, they'll be in hot demand. So I have no qualms about that asset. Nothing around that keeps me away from mine.
0: Are you buying um, shares today?
1: I have been buying a lot of shares and I think if I'm allowed to, I think this is a good time to buy for definite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, secondly, moving on from, you know, the, the other things that could really move the needle for shareholders though, of course, is, is Malaysia. And we have this, a bit of an outlier strategically. I talked to you about the strategy and the game plan. This, this block doesn't fit that at all. And I think we kind of have to admit it. We got into it because Petronas wanted to ask us to do it. So we were there in KL and we kept going back and said, look, would you, would you have a look at this, this acreage for us Uh, and do a study, which we did and we showed them the results and then they got excited about it. And I think converting that into a license for us is going to be a big step forward. Um, It's not uh, that hub. Um, strategy that I talked about, it's out with that. But at the same time, I think we can get value from that. So we can bring in partners. We can market that. It's got a very, very, very large prospect on it. So,
0: it's so what was the, what was the nature of that relationship with Petronas? Was they, they brought you in as a consultant to see uh, what you could do for them, or were they as a partner?
1: Yeah, I mean, we would end up as a partner with them on the on the license. They would be a de facto partner of ours. Was we're that not a consultant?
0: Of- was that original basis of the conversation and saying, look, have a look at this, we can't work it out?
1: What, we, what we've been doing is going to them and looking at their license rounds and saying, you know, which, which areas do we like? And, you know, we're looking at applying for certain uh, blocks in license rounds. And as we were doing that and waiting for those processes to start, because they have to fire a starting pistol before we, they can do anything, they said, look, in the meantime, which, why don't you have a look at this block? So they suge- it was their suggestion for us. Um, we were very happy to do it. And when we saw it, we got very excited. So we, we've got numerous prospects. There's one very, very, very large prospect, which you just cannot, um, you can't kill, you can't shrink it. It's, however you cut it, it's, it's enormous. And we know as gas chimneys on the seismic, and we actually Petronas, as a result of us showing them this, were acquiring a seafloor geochemical survey in the area, and they adapted their program to cover this prospect. And we got the results of that not long ago. And we have methane in the, um, the seafloor over the prospect itself. So we can see on the seismic gas coming out of this structure, and methane's in the seafloor above it. So we are very, coming back to the rocks, we're very confident that this is gas charged. Um, there, are, there are other technical risks associated with it, but you rarely see something of this scale. Um, that has those kind of indicators around it. And I think in the industry, the wider industry, this is an attractive drilling candidate. Now, I've told you earlier that going wildcatting in the middle of nowhere is a losing streak for independence. So, what I do not want to do is put Coro's uh, money into drilling that, no matter how much I love it. And this is where people often go wrong in this industry they fall in love with their prospects.
0: Well, there you go. That's what I was going to ask you, because again, I, I have invested in the region and uh, I do know one or two stats, but what, what, uh, <laughs> with regards to drilling success. So um, what, what's your view on these things? Obviously, you know, smaller fields are going to perhaps uh, not have as higher success rate as, as large goals that you described. But, you know, how are you going to fund something like that? I know it's early stage, it's patronas. you know, are, you, are they going to be funding this and you're going to run it technically? Are you going to put any cash towards this? I mean, how, do, how should shareholders feel about the conversations you're having in Malaysia? Uh,
1: well, they're in, they're in, there's basically three strands to it. One, one is that one about you know, Block 2A, which um, we would like to convert to PSE. Um, just one thing that's holding us up on that happening is it's offshore Sarawai. Sarawak um, is where the Bintulu LNG plant is located. And the Sarawakians are saying, look, you know, we want more of the economic rent from the oil and gas industry in Malaysia going to Sarawak rather than elsewhere. So there's been a, a dialogue, let's say, going on between the government and the, and the Sarawak state about that. And we're waiting for that to resolve itself before they can sign any new blocks in Sarawak. In fact, if you look at any of the license round stuff in Malaysia, there are no, there's nothing in Sarawak coming up. Once that resolved, I think we'll be then free and clear to sign the 2A PSC. So there's that conversation out with our strategy, but something that we want to go for. The second thing is about um, uh, license rounds. So they have discovered tools that they are offering to the industry in a process, and that process will, will run for 6, six to 8-months, but you can apply for them. And this is the green field fallow field that that you don't write checks for, you, you undertake to do work program. So, we could be receiving um, these small fields to be worked on. Some of them have production on them too, uh, from the state, but you know you have to convince Petronas that you are the right people to pick this up, that you're going to devote time and energy and love it and all the rest. and having been in Southeast Asia for so long and in Malaysia with Salamander, and even with Lasmo actually, when I was a young whippersnapper, I did lots with uh, those guys. Um, that's where they do know you. That that does help when, when you come. With
0: whose this. money? Whose money are you using?
1: Well, that, that doesn't cost anything until you actually start drilling wells on it. it you, you, you are literally just paying, okay, you're paying someone's salary, but it, it, it's it's not something whereby you're writing cheques. Right. The third thing is, looking for transactions, MA transactions from other counterparties in those countries. If you were to, to pull off one of those, yes, you would be having to write checks, absolutely. And that's where you have to get creative around structuring. So they're really the three conversations. We want to make sure that Petras are comfortable with us as an investor in Malaysia, as a partner for things like 2A, and also as a counterparty to look at things that you know, people withdrawing from Malaysia, all the Indonesians in Indonesia, are comfortable that Koro are going to be the right sort of people to own these assets once these other countries are gone.
0: Okay, but your your number one focus is what Mako, Malaysia is
1: on the no, but side. Number, the M&A angle. I think mean, Mako. We don't operate Mako. You know, Conrad operate that, and they're doing a great job. I, you know, obviously we're looking at what they're doing, and helping where we can. But I don't want to get in their face and in their way. they they're, they're, they're very, very capable. Coming back to partners, I'm very happy with Conrad as a partner.
0: Okay, no, my, my, my point is your number one priority is to get that deal over the line and working. Yes. Correct. Okay. Oh, well, Mako.
1: Yeah, um, is it my number one priority? I think the number one priority is going to change the lives of, of uh, Coro shareholders, is going to be Coro getting on the end of a sizable production based deal. That is going to change our world. That's my number one priority. Mako is great. I love it. But it doesn't need us, every, you know, eight hours a day worrying about Mako. It does, just doesn't require it.
0: What are you doing for eight hours a day at the moment?
1: <laughs> well, as you know, I'm over in Southeast Asia quite a lot. Um, it's a reasonably big patch to, uh, to cover. Um, I feel, you know, that you, you need to understand the dynamics of what's happening there. And I think if I, if I wake up in the morning, and read a headline about a transaction that I knew nothing about, I am depressed as hell. That is a massive failure. So you need, you need to be in a position where you know what's going on in the market, you know who's buying what, you know who's selling what and you know where you want you, yourself to be. And, and that is um, the most important thing. When you're there, it's actually getting on the other side of the, of the counterparty, being the counterparty of the right deal.
0: Where, awesome. where are you based?
1: Generally between London and KL and Singapore. Um, How do you split your time? Um, it, it varies through the year, but I'm probably a little more time in London than, than the other locations, but I'm out there frequently. People in Singapore seem to think I live there. People in London seem to think I live here. So, you know, you must be getting something right.
0: Okay. okay. Um, can you just, just it's, a, it's a small one because I, I couldn't quite work it out. What, who, who and what is C4 Energy in relation to the business?
1: Yeah no, um, I, it's, it doesn't have any relation to Coro. Um, uh, I think it might. I think it's some. It's a James and uh, Marco um, deal, but I don't know. I mean, you have to ask them. To
0: Nothing to do with Coro. Okay, interesting. Thanks. Mate. And then I've got to finish with this one because you said it, and I was like, what does he mean? Uh, commodity price isn't an issue in relation to what we're doing. So, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. Uh, it means that if you look at the production sharing contract system in these countries, um, this oil price is absolutely fine. It'll, make, it, it, it'll work, um, and equally for gas. You know, gas tends to be for local markets. Um, it tends to the price tends to vary depending on demand. But you, you, I'm not sitting here today worried, thinking I need the oil price to go up, otherwise I can't do anything. The oil price is fine. I'm very happy with it. Um, right. It can be a problem, it's not anymore.
0: Right. Okay. Um, look, James. Thanks very much. Good introduction to the business. Um, I know a little bit about it. I've put a bit of money into that part of the world, oil and gas, hunting it offshore, uh, like you guys are. Um, not necessarily successfully, uh, in all cases. Um, so, so like, do you stay in touch with us. Let us know how you get on. You've got a few few things going on there. It's early days. Um, I say the market is. Has has been interesting for the past two, three years, certainly in terms of the financing side of things. Um, I'm not quite sure when it will pick up. I'm not sure any of us do. Um, we shall well, see. I think
1: let's not rely on the market for for a pickup and borrow. And so I don't. I don't want to, you know, oh, it's got to float all boats and uh, we'll just go up as everyone else is. I think we can do things, to differentiate ourselves, and and you know get deals over the line. But, you know, we need to look very different quite soon, which is what I'm working towards.
0: Well, I mean, well, that's a great point, actually. You know, because again, we, we we've heard a few you know small management teams come through asking us for money to do deals in Southeast Asia, offshore, shallow offshore stuff. Um, but there's a lot of guys out there hunting for cash. Yeah. Do, you, do you what what do you think they will be successful? I know you outlined at the beginning why why you th- thought you were
1: unique, but it's a massive province. It could, it to be honest, it needs them. Because the the, the turnover and the ownership of the assets is going to be so dramatic, and I don't think I don't think the um, the governments have kind of latched onto this quite yet, but they are going to have to deal. They're not going to deal with Exxon anymore. They're going to have to deal with someone else, and they have to get used to the idea that people like Coro and our peers are are, are going to be their new, next wave of the industry, and. You know, the sooner they kind of manage that, they they should manage that transition, such they're in control of it. If they don't, um, it will be like the wild west again. But I'd like to see a capital come back, and I think there are some really good management teams out there. You know, they're sensible guys, and I think you know, as stewards of the next wave of Southeast Asia's industry, they'll be great. So I think I you know I want everyone to succeed at it. Um, and as you say, you know, there are, there are a lot of people around, and and they've got some great ideas. And um, I think you know, we could. Definitely see a rejuvenation of, of that sector.
0: Well, let's, let's see what happens. Thanks again for your time. Stay in touch and we'll speak to you soon.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.